Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This is the seventh and the last episode in our mini-series here on Communia Sanctorum that we're calling The Long Road to Reform. In Italy, the Renaissance was a time of both prosperity and upheaval. Moderns of the 21st century are so accustomed to thinking of Italy as one large unified nation, it's difficult to conceive of it as it was through most of its history, a patchwork of various regions that were at odds with each other. During the Middle Ages and a good part of the Renaissance, Italy was composed of powerful city-states like Florence and Venice, who vied endlessly with each other. Exacerbating the turmoil was the interference of France and Germany, who influenced affairs to their advantage. It was within the mix of prosperity, intrigue, and emerging Renaissance ideals the papacy carried on during the last decades of the 15th century. I need to insert a cautionary footnote at this point as this is the last of our series laying out the history for why the Reformation occurred, we need to deal with something that may be a bit unsettling for some of our listeners. And that is the string of popes who were, how shall I describe them? Well, less than holy, less than the men of God that others were. Even many loyal Roman Catholics acknowledge that the men who've ridden Peter's chair haven't always been of sterling reputation. Not a few have been a ragged blight on the Holy See. That there was a string of them in the 15th century helped set the stage for the Reformation. And I hope that this mini-series in Communio Sanctorum has made it clear that reform only became something outside the church when the decades-old movement for it within the church was forced to exit. Never forget that Luther began as a Roman monk and priest who was forced out. During his reign in the mid-15th century, Pope Eugene IV sought to decorate Rome with the new artistic styles of the early Renaissance. He recruited Fra Angelico and Donatello. This began a trend among the popes to imbibe the ideas of the Renaissance, especially in regard to art. They sought to adorn the city with palaces, churches, and monuments worthy of its place as the capital of Christendom. Some of the popes moved to greatly enlarge the papal library. All this construction wasn't cheap especially the construction of St. Peter's Basilica. So the popes came up with new ways to raise funds, a subject we'll come back to later. Not all Renaissance popes focused on the arts. Some were warlords who led military campaigns. Others took delight in playing the high-stakes game of political intrigue. Eugene IV was succeeded by Nicholas V, who spent his term from 1447 to 1455 trying to gain political dominance over the Italian states. His goal was to turn Rome into the intellectual center of Europe. He recruited the best authors and artists. His personal library was said to be the best. But being a scholar didn't preclude him being brutal. He ruthlessly pursued and executed anyone who opposed him. During his reign, Constantinople fell to the Turks. He called for a great crusade to go retake the city, but everyone knew that he only wanted to increase his own prestige, and so they ignored him. His successor was Calixtus III, who served only three years. Calixtus was the first pope of the Spanish family of Borgia. Under the guise of standing against an invasion by the Turks, Calixtus embarked on a campaign to unite Italy by military conquest. Nepotism reached a new height during his reign. One of the many relatives that Calixtus elevated was his grandson Rodrigo, whom he appointed as a cardinal. This Rodrigo would later become the infamous Alexander VI. The next pope was Pius II, who served from 1458 to 1464. 
Pius was the last of the Renaissance popes who took his office seriously. He tried to bring about much-needed reformation of the church, but his plan was stalled by the powerful cardinals. Pius was a true scholar who began work on a vast cosmography. Unable to complete the work before he died, it was instrumental in shaping the ideas of a certain Genovese ship's captain named Cristoforo Colombo. Pius II was followed by Pope Paul II, an opportunist who, upon learning that his uncle Eugene IV had been made pope, decided that a career as a churchman was more promising than his occupation as a tradesman. But his main interest was collecting jewelry. His lust for luxury so proverbial, his concubines were acknowledged by the papal court. Pope Paul wanted to recover the architectural glory of pagan Rome and devoted vast sums to the work. He died of internal bleeding brought on by his debauchery. Sixtus IV served from 1471 to 84 and came to power by literally buying the papacy. Corruption and nepotism reached new heights. His sole goal was to enrich his family, one of whom would become Pope Julius II. Under Sixtus, the church became a family business, and all Italy was involved in a series of wars and conspiracies whose sole purpose was to enrich the pope's nephews. His favorite was Pietro, who at the age of 26, he made a cardinal, the Patriarch of Constantinople and the Archbishop of Florence. Another nephew plotted the murder of one of the Medicis in Florence, who was stabbed to death before the altar while saying mass. When the dead man's relatives took revenge by hanging the priest who had murdered him, the Pope excommunicated the entire city of Florence and then declared war on them. Despite all these grotesque shenanigans, history remembers Sixtus for something else the Sistine Chapel, which was named after him. Before his election in 1484, Innocent VIII made a solemn vow to quit the nepotism that had become endemic to the papacy. But as soon as he was pope, he declared that since papal power was supreme, he wasn't bound by any prior oath. What's the old phrase? It's good to be king. I guess we could also say it's great to be pope. Innocent VIII wasn't. Innocent, that is. He was the first pope to acknowledge several of his illegitimate children, on whom he heaped honors and wealth. Under the management of his son, the sale of indulgences became a shameless business proposition. Pope Innocent ordered Christendom to be cleared of all witches, and hundreds of innocent women were executed. After Innocent's death, Rodrigo Borgia bought the cardinal's votes and became pope under the name of Alexander VI. He ruled from 1492 to 1503. Under Alexander, papal corruption reached its all-time zenith, or we should say its nadir. Now, I hope that Roman Catholic listeners don't hear this and assume that I'm just doing a bunch of Catholic bashing. It's Catholic scholars who chronicle all of this. It's simply a sad chapter in church history. Pope Alexander was a moral wretch who publicly committed all the capital sins, save for gluttony, and only that because he had a persistent case of heartburn. The people of Rome, well acquainted with Alexander's excesses, said of him, quote, Alexander is ready to sell the keys, the altars, and even Christ himself, but he's within his rights since he bought them, unquote. Alexander had numerous affairs with the wives of the men of court. These women gave him several children whom he openly acknowledged. The most famous of these were the infamous pair of Caesar and Lucretia. Italy was besmirched by blood because of his many plots and wars. His court was so corrupt that many fabricated tales were hatched. Sad, since there was no need to embellish the list of sins attached to his reign, which for long after hurt the reputation of the papacy. 
Alexander VI died unexpectedly. The suspicion is that he mistakenly took a poison that had been meant for another. His son, Cesar, had hoped to inherit the Holy See, but was struck by the same ailment. So the cardinals elected Pius III a reformer. He lasted 26 days before dying mysteriously. Can anyone say conspiracy? This brought Julius II to the papal seat, who was a worthy successor to Alexander. When popes are elected, they pick a name that they want to take for their tenure as the head of the church. The papal name gives us a hint how the new pope sees his role and what he hopes to accomplish. Julius was only the second to take that name, which exists as a harbinger for what he aimed to do. Appointed a cardinal by his uncle Sixtus IV, Julius modeled himself more after Julius Caesar than any of the saints in church history. Like many of the popes of that era, Julius was a patron of the arts. It was during his pontificate that Michelangelo finished the Sistine Chapel and Raphael's frescoes decorated the Vatican. But this pope's favorite pastime was war. Visitors to the Vatican today are struck by the bright colors of the Swiss Papal Guard. The only way that they could be called camouflage is if they were trying to hide an adjacent Pollock painting. It was Julius who reorganized the Papal Guard, dressing them in uniforms that are said to have been designed by none other than Michelangelo. And we might expect a pope to make a poor general, but he was in fact so successful in his military and diplomatic exploits that it was rumored he might finally achieve the unification of Italy. Now, of course, France and Germany opposed these plans, but Julius defeated them both in diplomacy and on the battlefield. He died in 1513, earning the epithet Julius the Terrible by his contemporaries. He was succeeded by Giovanni, the son of Lorenzo de' Medici. Giovanni took the name of Leo X. Like his famous father, Leo was a patron of the arts. He failed to consolidate Julius's military and political gains, and in 1516 was forced to sign an agreement with Francis I of France that gave the king enormous authority in church affairs. Leo's immersion in the world of the arts overshadowed his pastoral concerns. He was determined to complete St. Peter's in Rome. The financing of that project was the main purpose for the sale of the indulgences that provoked the protests of a certain German monk named Martin Luther. In our next episode, since we've now come right up to the Reformation in Europe, we'll get caught up with our narrative of the church in the East, because Martin, John, and Philip, that is, Luther, Calvin, and Melanchthon, well, they're just chomping at the bit to jump in. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.